and amen. You may be seated. Amen. I'm going to invite you today to turn to 1 Kings chapter 17, and we're going to be getting there at verse 1 and just a little bit down through about verse 14. And, and so we have kind of a full load. I want to invite you just to hang in there because I believe that God is speaking, that God is helping and directing us as a church and as an individual. And so I, I just want to invite you to, you know, especially listen to what the Lord is saying, because I, I think he's speaking. I believe that he's speaking to our congregation. And and uh, and I, I believe that God has something to say to you this morning in this message. Because he's stirring our congregation. I, I enjoyed the time with our church board on Monday night. We did this pastoral review. That's always kind of it's uncomfortable for the board because they feel bad about having to be kind of critical, analytical, and all that, and then this challenging for the pastor, you know, little nervousness there going on, and, and, and yet, but yet it seemed like God was a part of this thing, and that God was affirming that he is moving at Mission Church of the Nazarene, <clears throat> and I'm excited about that, amen, and in fact, I, I look at the congregation this morning, we, we're working on getting some of the classes to shift when they meet, and it'll fill up this service a little bit, so we'll bounce the services out. That's going to be positive and, and momentous, and so, I mean, looking forward to that, and, and just, just making great decisions that's going to bless the ministry as we move forward, and, and you be praying about all of that, because God is doing a good thing, a great thing here at Mission Church of the Nazarene. You believe that, Jeff? Amen? I tell you what, I'm enjoying getting to know our staff. We have an awesome team. I'm not just saying that flippantly, you know, to get kudos or coin from my, my staff. But we, I'm sincere. We have an awesome staff. And we're getting closer. And I think we've become friends. Yeah, 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 Jeff says, yeah. And, and it's, it's just, we're having a blast and so we're so glad that you're here. We're nothing without you. So God is speaking, and I believe he wants to speak to us this morning here in this passage. And I, I want to go back to the, you know, way back to the beginning of the history of the nation of Israel when they come into the promised land, oh, about 1200, 1100 B.C. And we know, of course, as they get established, some, some years pass, in fact, several hundred years pass, and then, you know, what they begin to think, they think, you know, we want to be like the Joneses. They, we want to be like the other countries surrounding us, and we want to have a king like them. And so they approach their judge at that time. They were ruled by judges, the voice piece, the mouthpiece of God, who was Samuel at the time. And they approach Samuel, and, and they say, Samuel, we want a king like everybody else. And, of course, Samuel acquiesces eventually against his better judgment, and and he does what? He appoints or he anoints, you know, King Saul. And historically, we've read it. We know how that goes. It kind of disintegrates a little bit. It kind of goes downhill from there until David is made king. And then, of course, David, and not without speed bumps, but David restores the glory and the splendor of the Lord. Amen. And, and then, of course, Solomon follows. But the timeline in this passage, we go to 1 Kings chapter 17. The timeline in this passage, this story... It's during the divided kingdom, and Asa is the king of um, Judah, and he's a godly king. That's what the scripture says, that he is a godly king. And then Ahab is the king of Israel, and the scripture outlines it that he is following a line of evil kings, and that Ahab is more evil than all those before him. Partly because he marries Jezebel. Do you remember that? He marries Jezebel. 
And Jezebel's from a different country, and of course that's part of the problem. And, uh, and, and then they, they begin to worship Baal. That's what you know, Jezebel wanted. They start worshiping Baal as a nation, and they set up Asherah poles, this idolatry thing. And, and that becomes an issue for Israel. It just kind of hangs on like a tick almost. And it seems like even when they have a good king and they decide to follow God, at the end of those books with a good king even, it says we read that they did not put away their Asherah poles. And so this just kind of keeps hanging on, and they are embroiled in idolatry, and Jezebel's killing the prophets of the Lord and and things are just in chaos and they need a spiritual superhero. And that's why I love this passage because then, you know, enters Elijah and he is that kind of, you know, spiritual superhero for the kingdom of God. And we begin to read the story of Elijah, but it's not just about Elijah and we're going to see that. So let's go to first Kings chapter 17, looking at verse one. I hope I piqued your interest just a little bit to see what Elijah's doing here. So again, 1 Kings chapter 17, looking at verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. And so he's praying this, right? He's praying this so it stops raining. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth Ravine east of the Jordan. A few of us were just at the Jordan River just about a couple months ago. And so we're kind of familiar with that kind of juxtaposition where that's at, Jordan. So he's east of the Jordan. Verse 4, you'll drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kareth Ravine east of the Jordan and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I've directed a will there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called her and asked, would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, and bring me, please, a piece of bread. Now, we need to understand that, you know, Elijah's just not wandering around. I mean, if we're reading this in context. I mean, he's not wandering around. He's headed somewhere, and where he's headed, he's headed to Mount Carmel. And that same group that was by the Jordan a couple months ago, about 40 of us, we were, we were there on top of Mount Carmel. I mean, so we, we witnessed this. We experienced this firsthand. You know, where this took place. And, and so he's ultimately headed to Mount Carmel. Uh, but yet in the process of it, you know, God is supplying, you know, Elijah's needs. And in one way, it's through this widow. And I want us to recognize this because really what I should know is that there are two narratives here. There are two storylines that's happening. One storyline is that of Elijah. And, of course, it reaches its climax in Mount Carmel. We understand that as they battle against, you know, the prophets of Baal, you know, with his you know, with his God. Um, but the other storyline is that of the widow and, and, and the widow's obedience because God had directed her. We hear that once, but then God speaks twice a second time through the voice of Elijah. So Elijah speaks to her. God had already directed her. So she had heard the message twice that this is my will. You're to do this. You're to help this guy, Elijah. So God's providing, you know, a resource for Elijah to be able to eat, so to speak. And, and yet she kind of hesitates just a bit. It's interesting. 
I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat and die. You can imagine the exasperation. We just read this. It's flat on the page here. But, I mean, if we make it 4D, that means an experience, an emotion as well. That she's saying this, that I might go home, I just have, you know, just a palmful of flour and a little bit of oil in a jug. I mean, go home and make something so we can eat and die. They were desperate. It was a famine. Elijah said to her, look at verse 13. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you, as you have said. But first, make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land, until the famine is over. It makes me want to ask the question, how many of you today believe that stories in the Bible are true? Raise your hand. How many of you today believe that stories in the Bible are true? I mean, that, that, that's relevant. Because this is a supernatural moment, and God is doing a supernatural thing, and not only working in the life of Elijah, but working in the life of the, this widow here. Because they were both on, again, they were on their own journey, and they were, they were both headed somewhere. It, it's interesting, again, this is on the way to Mount Carmel, with the significant showdown between Ahab's prophets of Baal and, and of course, the God of Israel. And it's not an accident that happens in the mountain. Now, I grew up in Idaho, and I've been around the mountains, and pan gold in the mountains, been fishing, all that. And I know when there's a big mountain, you know, it's hard to see in the valley because you're on the mountaintop. And I know the saying that, you know, we grow in the valley. It's green in the valley, lush in the valley. In fact, when we're standing at Mount Carmel, we're praying together and having devotion, about 40 of us. And, and we, it was very emotional. We're up on the mountain. We couldn't see in the valley. But, you know, and it's true that we grow in the valley where it's green and lush. But, hallelujah, victory happens on the mountaintop. And Elijah's kind of pointing towards that, showing us this, and he does so in just such a wonderful way in the story of this jar of flour and jug of oil. And in that story, he's, he's, he's preparing this mother and this child for their spiritual journey, which really journey requires two things. It requires planning, right? You have to have good planning, you know, to make the journey so that you're ready. You need to have, you know, change of clothing when you get there or something, whatever the planning is. And then you have to have resources. You've got to have fuel for the truck or, or whatever the resources that are needed, the food. And so there's planning. There's good planning. There's resources. I, I really was reminded of this when I started talking to my wife about climbing Mount Whitney. That, that's it, right? That's the tallest mountain here in the United States, Mount Whitney. And, <coughs> excuse me. A couple of us have done that already here in the church, not myself. And so I was talking to Jerry Goodwin and, and some others about that, that climb. And they were saying, well, you need to start making these 10-mile hikes and then 12-mile hikes and 15-mile hikes. And they talked about all the planning that was necessary to get your body in shape, you know, to discipline your body. And then the supplies that were going to be necessary. And it became very relevant that if I didn't do this, that we'd have trouble. There, there would be some possible, you know, physical harm that would come to us if we did not plan well, if we did not have the right supplies, or we did not take the right, you know, steps for preparation. I wonder how many of us are trying to make this spiritual journey, teenagers, without the right spiritual planning, 
without the right spiritual preparation, without the praying or reading the Bible or, or doing even what we're doing this morning. So kudos to you that we're worshiping God and we're standing in His holy presence and allowing His voice to speak to us. It's important that, that there's planning. I see Elijah knows this. He's preparing the mother and the child, remember, uh, for a spiritual journey. And for her, you see, her planning was hearing God's voice. It came to her twice, God's direction and Elijah's voice. And so the key was that, that, that she would respond to God's voice, you know, and Elijah represented the voice of God, of course. So that's being obedient to God's word. The second key was to have faith that God would supply because he is the resource. And that's what Elijah was doing, having to have faith that, you know, this thing with the flour and the oil was going to take place. The miracle would happen. Right. So Elijah, he's 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 taking the step of faith and being obedient to God. So it's kind of a test for the widow, but also is a test for Elijah. And it's interesting, the same parallel type of thing is happening to the nation, to the people, because they are struggling with really putting their trust in God. In fact, not only in a big way at this point, but they struggle with putting their trust in God or they struggle putting God first all throughout history. Huh? I wonder how we are doing that, how we are doing as a church if we struggle with putting God first. I mean, if we're really serious about ministry and we're serious about the mission, how are we doing with putting God first? And we say, oh, by the way, I'm a believer. You know, I'm a Christian. How are we doing at putting God first? I mean, really being serious about putting God first in our life. Because, see, this, I think this scenario challenges us. Maybe this is why Elijah, you know, brings, is, is challenged by God to bring blessing to Seraphith. I mean, it was so outside of the box to do that. I mean, there's, there's some risk in that. And, and probably the reason why he was so nervous about it. And we understand God shows favor upon who he, the ones he chooses. And, of course, that favor leans towards those who are willing to respond to God, to hear God's voice, to be obedient to God. Maybe, maybe this is some foresight of God's grace for all mankind in the dispensation that comes through Christ. I mean, you know, again, there's layers here in the context of the story. And remember, Elijah's on the run, and Jezebel was from Sidonia, and she kind of becomes his arch enemy, so to speak, in this whole process of things. And, and, and yet God, you know, in the midst of the complexities, God is still working his will out. He's sovereign. And, and Elijah, of course, is learning to have faith and trust in God, just as this widow woman is. Now back to the jar of flour and the jug of oil. Now think about that, the little bit of flour and the little bit of oil. It's interesting that it's, it's God's way to make use of those who have not enough are those that are weak in this world. Let me say that again. It's interesting that it seems like it's God's way that God uses those that do not have enough or those that are weak in this world. I think of Moses. Moses in his stuttering, his inability to speak, and he said, oh God, I'm unable to do this. And, or maybe David, who was just a mere boy, he was to faith Goliath, he was to fight this giant, and he could have said, man, I'm just, I'm just a mere boy. You see, this widow here shows us the same similar example as the widow uh, shows in, in Luke chapter 21, looking at verses 1 through 4. And I don't know if you remember that passage, but that's where Jesus is sitting back and he's observing people giving you know, to the treasury, the offering at the temple. And he notices the rich put in some, they put in a goodly amount. 
But then he notes that this widow comes in and she gives these two mites. The widow's mite, she gives these two mites. And a resource, I learned that a, a widow's mite is not a penny. It's just a fraction of a penny. In fact, while we were in the Holy Land, I purchased a widow's mite, you know, from the first century. And it's a, just a tiny little piece of metal. And it's just a fraction of a penny. And Jesus says there in Luke chapter 21, he, he says that's all that she had. I mean, she puts in the treasury everything that she has. And in fact, if I, if I had a point to make, this is it, and I think it's in your notes, here's my point. Serving God has nothing to do with the resources we think we have or don't have. I mean, that's worth reading a second time, I think. I'm not going to, but it's worth it. And this story puts us right in the middle of the hills of faith, you know, on that mountaintop where there's victory in the Lord. And, and then the widow kind of shows us some things about serving God. And so... You know, I loved, you know, the prayer that, Sherry, you just prayed about, you know, going deep, that we might be real with ourselves as God speaks to us and that, that God might, you know, reach deep into our hearts as we hold ourselves accountable. And I think the widow does that well in showing us some things about serving God. And the one things that the widow shows us, you know what she shows us? She shows us that serving God means overcoming objections in her own mind. I mean, you can imagine, you know, I guess we could, she could have easily justified or we would not even fault her if she would have said in this situation, giving up her flower and all, if she would have said, well, man, my kid comes first, right? I mean, we would embrace that in our culture today, our society. Yeah, my kid comes first. We wouldn't fault her if she said, yeah, my family comes first. We probably wouldn't even fault her if she said, hey, this guy's a stranger. You know, why should I give him my flour and oil? I mean, I don't know, you know, this guy from Adam. I mean, I'm sure there were these objections in her mind because this was real life if we believe the stories. And so we can't fault her for that. And in fact, we, we couldn't fault her if she were to say something like or think something like, you know, I have no relatives nearby. I have no, I have no plan B. I have no other resource. If I give up this little bit of flour and this oil, then I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be lost. And we're going to die. Remember the desperation that we might eat this little bit and then die. And so what the widow shows us, she shows us that serving God means overcoming objections. That's the first one. Here's the second one if you're filling in the blank. Serving God means emptying thyself. Serving God. This is what she shows us. Serving God it means emptying thyself. Thyself. That means that we are, we are moving in the spirit of Matthew 6.33 that says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything else shall come to us. God will meet our needs. If we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, all these other things will be added to us. Because why? We understand that our very best effort cannot even begin to compare with God's worst effort. Can I say that? Is that okay to say it that way? That, that, that our very best effort, it pales in comparison, you know, to what God can do with just, you know, a moment. Because God not only supplies our needs, he wants to supply our needs. And, and, and his best and his better is something that we've not ever dreamt of. It's something that we cannot even imagine. My wife and I, as we started ministry 30 years ago, you know, we were just... Uh, we were young and we were kids and, and we were, you know, going into this thing and not sure what it was going to be like. And, folks, I cannot tell you how, man, it has been so fulfilling to serve the Lord. I mean, it's been such a blessing. I mean, over and over, the depth of the blessing I cannot even begin to define because God's 
will is better than your best. Did that make sense? God's will is better than your best. So serving God means emptying ourselves, which means trusting God with the outcome. So the point is, a little of God's help goes so much further than what we can do on our own. So that's the second one. Here, you're filling these out. Here's the third one. What the widow taught us is that serving God means recognizing the law of the first fruits. That means that we believe in the divine promise that God desires and our hope is that he will meet our needs and that he will, he will walk with us and he will never let us go. And we can trust God. We can trust God with our resources. We can trust God with our life. We can trust God especially with our heart. And we see the widow giving us you know, this kind of hope that we can trust God and God will meet our needs. I, I love the fact that we see in the flour and the oil that the increase, now listen to this, that the increase in the flour and the oil, because it was supernatural, remember, a miracle that would never run dry, it'd never be used up, that the increase in the flour and the oil was not in her hoarding. The increase in the flour and the oil was in her spending it on behalf of God according to God's will. And see, that stretches us because it's not in the hoarding that, that, that we become better off because God's best is way better than we can ever imagine or achieve on our own. And that means when we give to the Lord, whether it's our finances or our energies or emotions, that God is going to do more with that than you could ever do on your own. God blesses you when we serve and we give for him. I was moved when I came across this story here. Um, it was written by a pediatrician. Dr. David Sekira, he shares a story of how a dying girl showed his church the honor of serving God. And this was so important. I want to share this with you. It'll take about five minutes. One Sunday, my wife had, so the doctor's writing here about his wife. One Sunday, my wife had prepared a lesson on being useful. She was a Sunday school teacher. She taught the children that everyone can be useful, that usefulness is serving God. And that doing so is worthy of honor. The kids quietly soaked up my wife's words. And as the lesson ended, there was a short moment of silence. A little girl named Sarah spoke up. Teacher, what can I do? I don't know how to do many useful things. Not anticipating that kind of response, my wife quickly looked around and spotted an empty flower vase on the windowsill. Sarah, you can bring in a flower and put it in the vase. That would be a useful thing. Sarah frowned, but that's not important. It is, replied my wife, if you're helping someone. Sure enough, the next Sunday, Sarah brought in a dandelion and placed it in the vase. In fact, she continued to do so each week. Without reminders or help, she made sure the vase was filled with a bright yellow flower Sunday after Sunday. When my wife told her pastor about Sarah's faithfulness, he placed the vase upstairs in the main sanctuary next to the pulpit. That Sunday, he gave a sermon on the honor of serving others. Using Sarah's vase as an example, the congregation was touched by the message, and the week started on a good note. During that same week, I got a call from Sarah's mother. She worried that Sarah seemed to have less energy than usual and that she didn't have an appetite. Offering her some reassurances, I made room in my schedule to see Sarah the following day. After Sarah had a battery of tests and days of examinations, I sat numbly in my office. Sarah's paperwork on my lap. The results were tragic. She had leukemia. On the way home, I stopped to see Sarah's parents so that I could personally give them the sad news. Sarah's genetics and the leukemia that was attacking her small body was a horrible mix. Sitting at their kitchen table, I did my best to explain to Sarah's parents 
that nothing could be done to save her life. I, I don't think I've ever had a more difficult conversation than that one that night. Time pressed on. Sarah became confined to bed and to the visits that many people gave her. She lost her smile. She lost most of her weight. And then it came, another telephone call. Sarah's mother asked me to come see her, and I dropped everything, and I ran to the house. There she was, a small bundle that barely moved. After a short examination, I knew that Sarah would soon be leaving this world. I urged her parents to spend as much time as possible with her. That was a Friday afternoon. On Sunday morning, church started as usual. The singing, the sermon, it all seemed meaningless. When I thought of Sarah, I felt enveloped in sadness. At the end of the sermon, the pastor suddenly stopped speaking, his eyes wide. He stared at the back of the church with utter amazement. Everyone turned to see what he was looking at. It was Sarah. Her parents had brought her for one last visit. She was bundled in a blanket, a dandelion. She was holding one little hand. She didn't sit in the back row. Instead, she slowly walked to the front of the church where her vase still perched by the pulpit. She put her flower in the vase and a piece of paper beside it. Then she returned to her parents. Seeing little Sarah place her flower in the vase for the last time moved everybody. At the end of the service, people gathered around Sarah and her parents, trying to offer as much love and support as possible. I could hardly bear to watch. Four days later, Sarah died. I wasn't expecting it, but our pastor asked to see me after the funeral service. We stood at the cemetery near our cars as people walked past us. In a low voice, he said, Dave, I've got something you ought to see. He pulled out of his pocket the piece of paper that Sarah had left by the vase. Holding it out to me, he said, you better keep this. It may help you in your line of work. I opened the folded paper to read in pink crayon what Sarah had written. Dear God, this vase has been the biggest honor of my life. Love, Sarah. I can't help to find myself in 1 Kings in chapter 18 around verse 21 where it challenges us. How long? How, how long will you limp between two opinions? You see, a superhero really knows what they think. I mean, seven times Elijah prays for rain and, and asks for rain. And you see, a superhero, he has a faith that, that, that knows, you know, that he must not you know, give up or he doesn't need to quit because God will answer. And he knows that it's not how many times you fall that counts, but how many times you get back up. Elijah, he runs ahead. You see, a superhero of faith will go further and do more and accomplish more and arrive just on time because they are trusting God. If they are a superhero of faith and ladies and gentlemen, I don't know what you've been going through in your life, but I know this, that to be a superhero of faith means that we're willing to do just like that little Sarah did. And that is that serving God, that we can serve God in whatever capacity and ability that God has given us. I believe that. I believe that God can use every one of you in some capacity. In fact, I want to take a moment uh, and I want to invite Barbara to come up here and she was in her first service and I asked her to come back. Because I just wanted to take a moment and honor her. In fact, I struggled with this. I wasn't sure whether I wanted to do this because I didn't want to be misinterpreted and, and uh, you know, thought that we're doing this for, for the wrong reason. But I, I was preparing this message. Tristan drops her off and walks. <laughs> preparing my message. And I was thinking about people that, that go the extra mile that that serve God when they probably could come up with an excuse not to serve God. 
This young lady, her name's Barbara, by the way, and she is 89 today. Give her a hand. Wish her a happy birthday. She is 89 today. And I, I have uh, purchased a bouquet of flowers for her. I want to give this to her. And it's not for her birthday, but it is to say and to show appreciation because Barbara serves the Lord. You may not know it, but on occasion, out there in the courtyard just around the corner, she sat at that corner and, and she's on the 7-Up ministry team, the 7-Up follow-up team. And she greets people. And, you know, she doesn't get to do it every Sunday because, you know, there's some health issues that pop up. But when she is capable, she wants to be in that spot and she wants to greet people and she wants to serve. Listen, I, I guess I'm kind of meddling a little bit. Here's my point. If she can serve the Lord in the church, if she can serve, right, every one of us can serve. Every one of us can serve in ministry. In fact, in about three weeks or two weeks, I think, Pastor Vic, we're having a, a, uh, a ministry potluck. And it's for our 7-Up ministry and the ushers and the greeters and the sign people and the parking lot people and welcome people. And it's a big team, but we need more people. We need more people, and it's an open potluck, and we want new servers, new, new people that are willing to serve to come to that potluck and be a part of it. And I believe that God will bless us, church. I mean, if he's stirring our hearts and God is doing a new thing at Mission Church of the Nazarene, you know what that looks like? It comes out of service. It looks like service. We begin to serve God. And so whoever you are, I just challenge you this morning. Use Barbara as an example. Amen? Because she serves the Lord when she is capable and when she can. And I think you probably will do that till you die, won't you? Amen. Let's just give her a round of applause and thank Barbara for serving the Lord. And thank you, Father, for, or Barbara, for letting us do that this morning. Bless you. Amen. Amen. I just want to honor her. Well, this morning, we're going to finish, so appropriately, I think, we're going to finish in partaking in the Lord's Supper. Because, you see, Jesus, he, he ultimately, he, he was the one that, that served us first. He served us by becoming flesh, went to the cross, was crucified for us. He gave his life that we might have everlasting life. I mean, Jesus ultimately showed us how to serve by laying his life down for others. I want to invite our servers to come and get in place. And so this is very appropriate for us to have communion together corporately as a family of God. Because we're saying, Lord, thank you for serving us. Thank you, Jesus, for giving your life on Calvary, for dying for us, for giving us the remission of sins and redeeming us and forgiving us and giving us the hope of salvation. I mean, Jesus served us first. And so it's so appropriate for us as we prepare for Holy Communion that we partake of this communion remembering the sacrifice that Jesus made, the way he served us. But maybe even as a moment that we use to say, Lord... I've been setting back. I've been enjoying worship. This is a great church, but Lord, I need to serve you. And so even as we take communion this morning, it's a moment you're taking a step to say, Jesus, I'm going to serve you. I want to serve you. You know, you, you have the capacity. You have the ability. In fact, if I were to ask the question, how many of you have been a Christian for three years or longer? You don't have to respond. No, don't, do not raise your hand. But if I were to ask the question, how many of you have been a Christian for three years or longer? Probably 98% of us would raise our hands and say, yeah, I've been a Christian a lot longer than three years. Do you know that you have more experience then as a Christian than the disciples? It's 
time for ministry, Mission Church. It's time to step up and serve. Let's build the kingdom for God's glory. God builds His church. I understand that. But He works through those that are willing to be servants of His.